I, re- I had a, intentions to do that when I moved in. I had intentions to do that with chocolate chip cookies. Hmm. Find everywhere as far out throughout Milwaukee as I could that I could buy chocolate chip cookies and try every single chocolate chip cookie. That sounds really and difficult because like only a few of those places are actually going to advertise like, hey, we're the chocolate chip cookie place. Correct. Um, but so far, <laughs> I've like had this in my mind as I've gone places, right? And I've tried different levels of chocolate chip cookie. The best chocolate chip cookie that I've had, I'm pretty sure, has been in um, the like uwm owned 7-eleven knockoff <laughs> in the basement uh, no nah, the bottom floor of the residence hall <laughs> which is to say you've had like maybe three cookies which is to say those cookies are always served warm mm. and i think it's that important. that's gonna be hard to top yeah um we also have an insomnia cookies near us, and I think those uh, most of the time do pretty well. I think they lose their texture faster, the insomnia cookies do. Hmm. Interesting. Do you have aspirations to like see if you can find a better one? Yeah, I'd like to. Mostly because when school's not in session, the residence hall cookie machine isn't open. <laughs> Have you gone, have you been there as uh, a non-student? No. I have been back on campus, um, but usually I just end up getting Gushers because there's also a knockoff 7-Eleven in the student union and they have Gushers, but no cookies. Uh, Are they warm? (laughs) No. Hey, Zach. Hey, Liz. So a while ago, um, we, the intrepid reporters at (laughs) Worrying Bugs, uh, that we reported that Subway's bread isn't bread, uh, at least in Ireland for tax purposes. That bread's not bread. Um, That bread is a sweet something um, because if you want your value-added tax to to treat it like bread, then it's got to be bread, and this is not bread. Uh, Later on, we reported the fact that maybe Subway, uh, their tuna wasn't tuna, which is just like how far into like the ship of Theseus Subway problem do you get before they're like sandwich isn't sandwich. If their bread isn't bread and their tuna isn't tuna. Then their you know, tuna sandwich is not a tuna sandwich. Right. Surely. But is um, that because of the tuna or is that because sandwiches has a definition that Subway doesn't bread. agree with? Right. You know, actually, that's one way we could clear up the whole hot dog is a hot dog a sandwich thing is just petition the FDA to make a ruling on it. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Uh, just <laughs> change.org, make hot dog a sandwich officially. <laughs> uh, so they, they were like, hey, is your tuna tuna? Um, there was a class action lawsuit, uh, a couple of folks in California. Uh, We're like, hey, their tuna isn't tuna, and they are trying to charge us more for less good products because their tuna is not tuna. I can't find anything about these people, like why they care. (laughs) 
why they were first like, hey, I think this tuna is not tuna. There's no background on that. Um, Do you need a reason to care about tuna, Zach? Can't can't a person just think tuna should be tuna? I strongly agree with that. I don't think I would ever have walked into a subway and gone, you know what I should do with my time today <laughs> is send the tuna that I get in this sandwich to UCLA so they can test it and see if this tuna is tuna. Do they just do that for all of the food they eat? Do they like go into a pizza place and they're like, give me a second. I need to make sure this cheese is cheese. It could be like, I'm I'm just guessing here. You actually have information. My My thought, my brain went to like, Maybe the tuna doesn't, maybe the Subway tuna doesn't taste like they expected, mm-hmm. like real tuna to be. Mm-hmm. And they, if they're making a quality argument, then probably they can taste the difference. Yes, presumably. And so they're saying that, that they're getting subpar goods because they are not, uh, they're, they're paying tuna prices for things that aren't tuna. Mm-hmm. this is the the main claim you're giving us things that aren't tuna you're charging us tuna prices um and we sent our tuna off to a lab and it's not real tuna it's almost i think in every case there is no tuna to be found is what they always say that's a lot that's a lot of no tuna yeah and so this this is a really interesting story, and so a lot of people have been doing different kinds of reporting on it. Um, and Julia Carmel, uh, who works at the New York Times, uh, usually in the nightlife division, uh, apparently was like, hey, I am interested in doing this story where I buy a bunch of tuna from Subway, and then I send it off to a lab, and they tell me whether or not the, the tuna is, is real tuna. Beginning, j- just about beginning, with the line, so... I procured more than 60 inches worth of Subway tuna sandwiches. Um, I just am a big fan of weird units. I think in almost every case, you could give me a weird unit, and I would say that's that's a good joke. <laughs> Fun fact about canned tuna, it grew in popularity through the 1900s. Um, but in 2018, the Wall Street Journal reported that millennials were killing tuna. not Not the actual fish tuna. They were killing the industry of fishing for tuna. Because do you know why it is that millennials are killing tuna? They are too lazy to open and drain the cans. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. That, that, that should hold up, actually. Because you know what other what else millennials don't do? The, like, they don't have cans of soup or, like, black beans uh-huh. in a can or, yeah, like, no. like to, diced tomatoes or anything <laughs> like that. It makes total sense and if if that was the case if that was the case surely uh-huh. Uh-huh. surely someone would just make would sell Easier tuna cans to, with the, yes because they just make the like pop lid tuna cans at this point whatever you know not the main story they're just trying to explain that like tuna got really popular because it was one of the cheapest ways to get protein in a can makes sense very easy to do get some get some canned tuna now you got protein um and the getting of the tuna into the can is also pretty easy for supply chain reasons Mm -hmm. so uh julia carmel got got her tuna and sent it to a lab and they ran a pcr test on it um and now i have had producer h explain to me what the heck a pcr (laughs) test is thank you producer h 
going to botch this and um, they are not going to be allowed to hear this because they'll kill me if they hear how much I screw this up. Uh, PCR test is a polymerase chain reaction test. So Liz, you know DNA. Good, good familiar, buds with yep. DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's got a bunch of little base pairs. Um, there are those, those four letters that you know, uh, know and love. And we use those to make our us. All of the stuff that is us, that's made out of the DNA. A PCR test is looking at particular lengths of a particular sequence of DNA. So it's saying, you know, whatever. Uh, we, see, we use PCR tests as COVID tests. Um, you say, hey, do you, how much of this particular sequence of base pairs? I think that is called a gene. I am not sure. That makes sense to me. How much of this particular sequence of base pairs exists in your blood? And mm-hmm. if we split open a bunch of COVID-19 viruses recently, then there's going to be a bunch of COVID-19 related base pairs. Um, I think usually you're looking for the spike protein, but that I might be wrong about. The the base pairs that code for the spike protein that it right. has. That, that makes sense, um, I think. And I have a degree way... in computer science. I know nothing about this. I'm just confirming based on like literally a high school education of biology. Yeah. So the way that the PCR test works is that it uses the normal mechanism for copying your DNA. So if you've got a cell and you want to make another cell, you use um, you use polymerase to do that. And... So we can use polymerase uh, and tell it particular places to start and stop. Um, You say, this is what the beginning of the spike protein gene sequence looks like. And this is what the end of it looks like. And then just say, hey, polymerase, go from wherever you can find a start to wherever you can find a stop. And this is all happening in soup. Every time my partner tries to explain anything about biology to me i go ah yes this is happening in the soup which which is to say that like this is all just kind of chilling out in a tube somewhere and so you have a bunch of these things that say here's the beginning of the sequence and here's the end of the sequence and they're just kind of hanging out and then at some point maybe they will find that sequence and attach to it and maybe they won't. Um, and then at some point, maybe the polymerase will find the start and attach to it and then go from there to the end if the end has attached to it. And so, like, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. If you've got one bit of the spike protein RNA somewhere in your blood you might never actually like locate it because there's so little that the the start and the stop are never going to find each other. Sure. So that's the the soup theory of how this all works. Um, (laughs) uh, And so there are a couple steps to that. You need to heat the DNA to get it to separate into two strands so that the start bit can find where it's got to attach to. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you, so that's calling called denaturing. Um, you denature it so they get separated, and then you cool it again to anneal or reanneal, 
um, and that's everything gets stickier again. So the either the DNA that was just together sticks back together or the DNA sticks to the start. And then you let the polymerase bounce around in the soup for a minute um, to see if it can find a start and replicate it. And you just carry on in this way in a number of cycles. You say, see if we can attach the start, actually attach the start, replicate from the start, do it again. The more that you do this, the more that you are making copies of the exact thing you're looking for. And so the more likely you are to find it next time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of times when you're measuring a PCR test, you're looking at how many times do we want to, do we need to do this cycle of heating and then cooling and then letting the, the polymerase do its thing before we get a noticeable level of the thing, whatever the thing is that we're looking for. And presumably there's like a test that if you like, if you have like the DNA for a spike protein, say, um, then you can like, if you like have only like, if you have a a cubic centimeter of water or or, or of like stuff, that is all spike protein then uh-huh. we can determine that it is in fact spike protein dna yeah you can do it with fluorescence is one way i don't know how that works i know it's a thing that happens <laughs> okay so that's pcr tests do you feel like you understand them well enough to understand what's happening here i think so and in in the spirit of that Mm-hmm. Uh, my guess for how they use PCR tests to determine if something is tuna or not mm-hmm. is something along the lines of uh, what was it? it was uh, what's the replicator again? Polymerase. Polymerase. So they have a polymerase that will copy a gene that is specific to tuna. Yes. So, and if the thing is not tuna. If it's fully not tuna, then that will just not replicate. Mm-hmm. But if it's like 10% tuna, it's going to replicate at uh, an expected rate. If it's 20% tuna, it's going to replicate at this expected rate. Mm-hmm. And via your fluorescence or whatever it happens to be, you can determine like, okay, in this much time or over this many cycles of heating and cooling you can determine how much tuna was in the original thing. Yeah. You start with tuna soup. I also want to make that clear. <laughs> in, in soup theory of this, you start with tuna soup. Right. And then you add in um, the, the start and the end and the polymerase. All right. Uh, cool. I feel good. is the word. I feel good about that. I feel like I just used my, uh, used my brain a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah, so that is, that's how they do the testing. When they're testing, they're testing for one of 15 saltwater fish that the FDA's seafood list um, calls tuna. Okay. Um, because this wouldn't be the worrying bugs if we didn't get into what the FDA calls what. To quote a Subway sandwich artist, <laughs> customers will bring this up that, that maybe the tuna is fake and we just go, I don't know, what kind of cheese do you want? <laughs> That's a, it's the only way to answer that question. It's fantastic. 
they looked at uh this article talked with a couple people who talk about the way that like we think about supply chains and where our food is coming from um food supply chains particularly uh Fish is often mislabeled up to 87% of the time, somewhere between 26 and 87% of the time. Um, they take a less desirable fish and they say, wow, look at this. There's like some some things that are not salmon that they will call salmon. They'll be like, oh, this is wild bay salmon. And what that actually means is we took a different pink fish and we cut it up so it looks like salmon. <laughs> I understand why it's done. I just don't like it. And I don't think I can be made to like it. Yeah. Um, You might not like that, but you will definitely love that Subway's official policy is that once you have made your tuna mayo mixture, so the tuna comes to Subway in cans. They flake it out of the can. It's like a big can. It's not just like a little circle traditional can that you get Mm -hmm. at the grocery store. It's a big can of tuna. They flake it out and then they mix it um you know just like by hand with their gloves on uh in with some mayonnaise because you make tuna salad and that's how you get it and then um you can let it sit on the refrigerated sandwich bar for up to 72 hours that is subway's official policy i i what what could more could i possibly say i think that just (laughs) speaks for itself (laughs) i don't have to convey you my disgust that should just be apparent um when you're getting the tuna into the can, you heat it once to like cook it, and then you pack it all in the can with the brine and whatever, and then you heat the can again to sterilize it. Sure. Then it comes out of that can after it's been shipped. It gets all mixed in with everything, whatever. And then it's sitting on a sandwich bar, and like you could pick up the chicken and like and micro unit of chicken falls out of your hand as you're going over the tuna. And you mm-hmm. put it on the sandwich, and now there's a tiny little bit of chicken in the tuna. This is a thing that could happen. I'm sure um, it does, too. Like, I, yeah. that seems like exceedingly common, if I had to guess. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this this journalist sent the tuna that she got from 60 inches of Subway sandwiches um, to the lab. And the lab was not able to find tuna in the samples. Uh, which could be a number of things. It could be that there's no tuna in the tuna. It could be part of the reason that I went into how PCR works is so you could understand that like a part of the process is that you heat it to make the DNA kind of fall apart and do wiggly things. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're heating tuna to get it into the can and then once it's in the can, you are also making the DNA fall apart and do wiggly things. Um, But without the intention of uh you know attaching the the start primers to it so perhaps pcr tests are not a good way to test this particular thing they're one of the better ways we have for genetic testing yeah in general but like if it if a thing has already been denatured twice over now right right it's also just like been moved and transported and whatever or it could be that there's no tuna who knows Inside Edition is another journalist place, place where they put the journalism. Um, They found that Subway Tuna, they looked in Queens at a couple different places, and they sent it away to a lab, and they found that it was tuna. Recently, Subway, so there's this whole lawsuit. There was the initial lawsuit that was like, tuna, this tuna is not tuna. 
And then they were like, actually, it's probably all fish, but it's definitely not all whatever they claim it is. Fresh caught bluefin and yellowfin tuna. And the judge was like, that's not, you don't, that doesn't matter. And then they, in November, uh, the same folks amended their lawsuit again. And they said it does contain tuna sometimes, but it also contains pork, cattle, and chicken DNA. Um, looking at tuna samples from 20 different subway restaurants in Southern California and submitting them for testing at UCLA. And that's all we really get. I don't think there's a lot of information on how they got it. I suppose my thought is if you pick up some chicken and you get a micro unit of chicken in your tuna, Mm -hmm. then there's going to be some chicken DNA in the tuna. Of course. Um, And I don't think it is on subway to ensure that there will never be a molecule of chicken in your tuna. Yeah, I think that falls outside the realm of like a good faith effort, you know? Right. Um, a lot of people have looked at this, so they, they interviewed some folks for this New York Times article. Um, and a lot of people were like, hey, probably tuna is not the one, probably Subway is not the one making the mistake here or, you know, misleading customers here. Probably if there's somebody doing something wrong, it's the folks who are putting the tuna into the container. Either they aren't doing their due diligence to make sure that it's just tuna, or they aren't, they're intentionally lying to Subway, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it could, I mean, there is a scenario where Subway, where the tuna place is the tuna distributor, I suppose, tuna reseller retailer Mm -hmm. says hey subway we got this we got something that is definitely tuna right here Uh we also got this stuff don't worry about it it's 50 (laughs) percent off and at that point i would be like subway that's kind of on you Uh uh-huh there's also that like there's not a lot of things that you could cut tuna with that would be cheaper than tuna. Chicken might be one of those things. We've we've done a lot to make chicken very, very cheap. But in most cases, you're not going to be, like, taking something else and using it to mix in to tuna. Um, mm-hmm. Because if it's going to be convincingly tuna-y enough, it's going to be the same price as tuna, probably. Subway has the website, subwaytunafacts.com. It exists. It just redirects you to subway.com slash whatever, whatever, our tuna. Um, our tuna is real tuna. And they say, Subway tuna is tuna. And they've got an infographic that tells you about all of the processes that go between uh, the, the fish being in the water and then the fish being in your mouth. There's a lot of steps in there. And so if you want to know more about that, you can go to subwaytunafacts.com. But I think the really interesting thing to think about here, uh, which is coming from um, comments from Peter Horn of the Ending Illegal Fishing Project, is that you walk into Subway and maybe you don't go, I need to spend money and time and effort sending this tuna off to UCLA. But you do go, wow, that's a really cheap sandwich. (laughs) And if they were putting a thing that wasn't tuna in this tuna, I don't think I'd be surprised. Because you walk into Subway and you go, oh, these are low prices. 
these are really like low prices for the fact that I'm getting a whole meal. And the thing that this lawsuit is trying to do is make sure that the place that the low prices are staying low from isn't exploiting me. Yes. I hope that Subway is not exploiting me for their low prices. But I know that the pr- the prices are very low. And that is the thing that is making me nervous about this tuna, is that the prices mm-hmm. are very low. Um, I, but as long yeah. as I'm not the one being exploited in the process. Uh, so I did just call the government to tell them that we have a commie among us. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have much to say beyond that. I just... And actually, this is there was another direction I was going to go with this, and then I was like, that's an irrelevant direction. But I think it is a relevant direction. Um, it is a relevant direction. The way that the like law and that blame works in the U.S. is kind of weird. Like the the person who has to bring a case, like the FDA is not trying Subway for giving them giving consumers bad fish consumers had to walk into subway and go i bet this fish is bad i i sorry i made a face and that's why that paused i i made a face because i just like didn't think about that before and i probably should have i was primed to think about it from uh you're wrong about is another great podcast and they did an episode on the mcdonald's hot coffee case Mm -hmm. um which is another place like this where the way that the law is structured it's subway's fault if um they're giving me something that is tuna that they're claiming is tuna and it's actually 100 percent chicken right i don't think that's happening if it were that would be subway's fault that would be subway's bad that's a thing that we don't subway don't want subway to ever do again and we don't want anybody we don't want jimmy johns to do it ever again either Mm -hmm. um and the way that we intended to handle that a long time ago was we said somebody goes to subway somebody goes to the court and they take subway to court and they say you are harming customers all over the u.s with this practice and We'd want it to never happen again. And then there's this thing called punitive damages that they say, okay, your life is not a million dollars worse because Subway put some chicken and you thought you were eating tuna. But because we want Subway to never make this same, uh, to be conniving in this particular way ever again, uh, we're going to charge Subway a lot of money for having done this dumb thing. Right. Um, because that is one of the few languages that Subway speaks. And then what just happens... A, just a reminder, uh, during the middle, this, this is a, a fictional scenario in which Subway is replacing tuna entirely with chicken. Zach is not saying anything about the real company, Subway. Correct. I, I do think that the real company, Subway, only speaks the language of money. Um because I think that's what <laughs> companies nice joke, are made Zach. to do. <laughs> but then what happens is is Subway goes, "Hey, look at this this numpty um, who thought that they needed a million dollars because we were giving them chicken instead of tuna." Or very particularly, "Hey, look at this numpty who needed a lot of money um, because 
the the hot coffee gave them third degree burns mm-hmm. um isn't that so foolish and then everybody's supposed to go haha this this foolish person um when like actually the way that it's it's all structured is that we just want to make it hurt for subway or for mcdonald's and the the mechanism that we have to do that is to take that money from subway and give it to a person who was harmed and not everybody who ever ate subway tuna thinking it was subway chicken tuna thinking it was tuna right hypothetically and not to like the fda to put energy into making sure that all of the 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 tuna is tuna and so the thing is if you are worrying about only the kinds of issues that can be brought to court by a citizen or two in california you're worrying about the kinds of things that are i don't want to be hurt in the process of subway having cheap meat but another place that could be improved um would be the other people who are being hurt by by subway and their propensity for cheap meat hypothetically hypothetically and the fact that our legal system puts a lot of power into the hands of particular people versus companies not a lot let me rephrase that it puts basically no power into people um but puts a little bit into consumers Mm -hmm. and i think generally i could say less into laborers um that we get we get problems solved in the ways that the legal system allows us to point out problems and if the way that we're allowed to do it is to go as a consumer i have the time and the energy and the the wherewithal to suspect that subway's tuna is not tuna um then that is the kind of problem that gets solved mm-hmm. Or it's not a real problem and everybody says, ha, huh, remember that time they blew this thing out of proportion? And it's like, well, <laughs> do you want it to just be a lawless land where, where no one is ever going to um, suspect anything or try to do something to protect themselves? Because the other option where we can trust in a system to protect us isn't readily available at the moment. And it seems we'll never be yeah so we have to like we have to do it this way and so like haha look at these people for um for deciding they want to walk into a subway and really care about tuna and like i think it's strange the way that they have rolled this back and forth and back and forth um but i think as a category people saying I am concerned that Subway's tuna is not real tuna and I want to address that. And the only way that I have to address that is by my own personal actions and my own personal access to the legal system. Um, I don't think that's a category in general to be lampooned. Totally agree. Anyway, if you need any more information, go to SubwayTunaFacts.com. <laughs> Wait, um, it is dot bug a TLD? I don't think so. They don't currently offer .bug domains on Hover. We could get um, subwaytunafacts.podcast. <laughs> I love that. I love. That. I really <laughs> like that idea.
How much would that be? That, they don't offer podcast domains. I what? swear that's one. Dot show. $35. Subwaytunafacts.show. Jared, if you would like us to have access to the website, subwaytunafacts.show, to do with whatever we want, you can um, go and support us on Patreon, uh, which is, I think, patreon.com slash worryingbugs. It is indeed. So, Zach, if mm-hmm. someone wants to tell us about the terrible, awful things that they are hypothetically putting in Subway Tuna. Right. And they wouldn't want to do that. They wouldn't want to do that publicly because, of course, Subway will come after them, hypothetically. Uh-huh. Um, and Subway it could also hypothetically be, like, infested in, like, say, like, Google's servers. So, like, email wouldn't be great. Mm-hmm. You don't know, like, what's happening in your Signal app. Yeah, couldn't, can't trust that. Can't trust that because it's going <laughs> through a server somewhere. Um, no, no. What you need is a decentralized way to securely uh, transmit your hypothetical subway uh, dirt, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um. And one way to do that is uh, through the Matrix Conversation Standard, which is matrix.org. Just if you are looking for more information on this than I'm going to give you, you go to <laughs> matrix.org. It's spelled normally. So, uh, Zach sent me a request uh, via our agenda for the cryptography of the matrix conversation standard because it is end-to-end encrypted and uh there's some interesting stuff going on there um so just first of all the idea behind the matrix conversation standard is (laughs) this is that can i say i i think i understand this as the standard is something meant to be implemented so you can have uh a conversation client a chat client and a server that that communicates with that can communicate to other people's clients also close you uh you have a server that can communicate with other clients or other servers so Ah, the easiest way to think about this is fancy email okay so (laughs) great just what i needed (laughs) The, that's how I've been thinking about it. So, if you have, if you're using email, and they, and I think they'd be okay with this comparison because they, uh, like, like email is all mm. over the like. What the heck is this page? Um. So the way messaging works most of the time these days is, uh, say you're using Signal. That's my preferred mm-hmm. chat client mm-hmm. uh, my f- phone has an app which has the signal client on it um, or something like that and that app sends my texts to a server the signal server and then the signal server sends my message to someone else whoever I sent it to and vice versa of course they can send it back 
Mm-hmm. So uh, what that means is that if the signal server is not working or has been compromised in some way, then it will be then my message will not uh, go where it needs to go or not be secure or something like that. And I just have no real recourse because like, it's not my server. I can't really do anything. Right. Um, It also is the case that that server needs to store that message. And in Signal's case, it's encrypted, but in a different chat thing, in a different messaging service, it may not be. So anyone with access to that database could see your messages. Mm Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things that Matrix does is you can have your own server similar to email. So I could have uh, matrix.barrygood.website, and that would be uh, a valid server for my my phone or, you know, the app on my phone to connect to. Mm-hmm. But I... And my server can talk to someone else's server. I can talk to Zach's server, and Zach's server can talk to him. Or you can go on um, the Gmail of Matrix. Say it is Google. You can go. Mm -hmm. You can make an account on Google servers, and send messages to people within that Google server, uh, and also to someone else's server, to my server, to Zach's server. From the Google server to my server or from wherever to wherever. Yeah, it actually uses, by default, um, the default impl- implementation uses HG, just HTTP requests. Mm-hmm. So just standard networking stuff. Uh, yeah. The same thing that your browser uses to access Facebook or Google or whatever. And that is, re- it's kind of sounds kind of simple when you put it like that if it's just like sped up email then it's like not that interesting but it has a bunch of other stuff that's really cool Mm -hmm. um in particular you can have uh rooms uh and users use their server to participate in rooms um and those rooms can be just two people conversation or a bunch of people uh a chat you know, like a group chat. Um, mm-hmm. And when I send a message to that group chat, everyone gets a copy and they each everyone has their own version of the history of that chat. And my message is, has sort of a um, cryptographic container of mm-hmm. the previous messages. It says, I know I, for sure I came after when Zach said, ha that's so funny. Yeah, exactly. And right. it has some mechanisms to deal with um, race conditions. So if two people send a message at the same time, uh, both of those messages think that the most recent message is message C. Mm-hmm. So when they reach that third party there's uh it's all stored in a graph so you have like uh two messages here and then the next message says both of these two are the most recent and they recombine they merge the two branches okay 
So that's kind of interesting. And all the messages are end-to-end -end encrypted, which is also very cool um, because that is non-trivial. Because um, that's... Oh, God. How does that... Ha how... Hmm. <laughs> how does that work if somebody joins a room? Let's start there. It's a good question. I don't actually know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. It should be the case that someone who joins a room cannot see the history of that room. They can see okay. new messages, but they can't see the like old messages from before they joined. Hmm. So I'm thinking about um, we we use Signal for group chats once in a while, mm -hmm. and every time somebody joins the group chat or gets a new phone and their phone has a new key, mm -hmm. um, it pops up a little message and says, by the way, here's a new person with a new key. And that, I'm guessing, means all the encryption, everything just got shuffled around a little bit. I don't know exactly how it works for Signal, um, uh -huh. but yeah, that that would be my guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, the end-to-end -end encryption uh, uses an implementation of the double ratchet algorithm, which is very interesting, and I'm going to go into a lot of detail. Okay, I'm excited. Okay, so the double ratchet algorithm is, this is from um, Open Whisper Systems, which is the which are the people who make um, Signal. Mm -hmm. um, the double ratchet algorithm is used by two parties to exchange encrypted messages based on a shared secret key, which is to say, it's an algorithm that you can use to encrypt messages. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um there is a key agreement protocol, and it is a variation of the Diffie-Hellman key exchange, which is um, like a, which just has a public and private key, um, mm -hmm. similar to PGP. Okay. And the algorithm itself is uh, future secret or post compromise secure, because the keys are generated because new keys are generated after each new message, uh, making it more making more or less recent messages still secure after one key has been compromised. That's, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm mm -hmm. thinking a lot about that. Does that mean that if I am in an end-to-end -end encrypted room, mm -hmm. my computer is remembering the key that was used for every message in that room as far back as I have been in it? It means that your computer could be doing that, but shouldn't be doing that. So ideally, as soon as you're done decrypting it, you don't need that key anymore and you can just delete it. Okay, right. Because I'm not getting the whole history from the server every single time. Right. I'm maintaining my own local history exactly. based on what I've decrypted. The algorithm... <laughs> the algorithm uses a key derivation. So it sounds like, oh my God, that's so many calculations. Like how could you possibly do a Diffie-Hellman uh -huh. key exchange for every single message? Yeah, uh, I am and thinking that, that. And that is, the, that is the cool part about the double ratchet algorithm is that you uh, effectively come up with a new key every single time, but don't actually have to do a Diffie-Hellman key exchange. The algorithm uses a key derivation function, a KDF, to make to take a secret random 
KDF key and some input data, uh, which should be random, and return output data. Um, so basically what that looks like is you and your partner, Alice and Bob, if you want, mm-hmm. uh, do a Diffie-Hellman key exchange, which is, I think we've covered how that works on a previous episode. You mix paint, right? <laughs> yeah, actually, you mix paint. Um, uh-huh. That's exactly correct. <laughs> um, basically, uh, just a quick overview uh Alice and Bob generate a public and private key. They send each other their public keys, and with the, if they combine their public key and their partner's, or no, if they combine their private key and their partner's public key, they can agree on a, an encryption key. So something that you can actually use to encrypt a message, without mm-hmm. ever having to send that value across a line i believe you (laughs) i'll 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 cover it next episode if that is something that people want but you're just gonna have to trust me for this episode that a diffie hellman key exchange is a very secure way to agree Uh on a key without ever having to send it over the wire this key derivation function is interesting because it takes that that secret that you agreed on via diffie hellman and some random garbage Mm mm-hmm and it returns a different piece of data, an output of some sort. And you can use that to ratchet the key, right? So you have a root, and then you say, and all this. And then you can get some output data that you can't get the root from. Mm-hmm. And that is, it. and that that can be your key. That output can be your key, and you can give it a different input or a different root and get a different key. And you, and both Alice and Bob can do that and ratchet the key. Wouldn't they be getting different randoms though, Alice and Bob? See, that's the next part. Okay. Alice and Bob uh, use a constant key. Here's my root key. Here is a constant. Say, hello. And you combine those, and then that is your first. That's your first output, and you take that output, and you can split it in half or whatever you have to do, and say that is the new root, and that is, and the other half is what we're going to use to encrypt our message. Hmm. And then you can run that new root through that same function, and you don't even need the old root anymore. You can just get rid of it, and you do this right. This that's that ratcheting. That's the first ratchet of the double mm-hmm. ratchet algorithm. Uh, and you do that for three chains, a root chain, a sending chain, and a receiving chain. The receiving chain and the sending chain are Bob's sending chain is Alice's receiving chain and vice versa. And then what was the third chain? The root chain. Okay. You can make three different chains and uh, you can come up with three different outputs every time you iterate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is called a symmetric key ratchet. Now, in order for Alice and Bob to have the same KDF keys that would necessar- that would be necessary to decrypt the message, the input data, as we said before, needs to be constant. Mm-hmm. Um, this means that without any further protection, uh, an attacker could learn one key 
in that chain and derive all future ones. Right. And probably all past ones. I'm not entirely sure about that. It makes sense to me for it to be past, but they said future in the art in the article I was reading. Uh-huh. Um so to prevent this, a Diffie Hellman ratchet is added on top of it, which is not a key exchange, but it's a ratchet. Mm-hmm. It's similar to that key exchange. Uh it's done by combining similarly to the key exchange, it's done by combining your partner's public key and your private key to create the current Diffie-Hellman output and then changing your key pair. This is the important part. You change your key pair to make the next output. Okay. So in practice, this looks like Alice and Bob generate public and private keys. Mm -hmm. Bob sends his public key to Alice. Alice... And both Alice and Bob use their their private key and their partner's public key to create a Diffie-Hellman output, which is just, that's just how the key exchange works. Mm-hmm. And then Bob sends a message, or rather, the message itself is has a header which has Bob's public key in it. Mm-hmm. And once Alice wants to send a new message she creates a new private and public key sends her public key to bob and uses bob's old public key or the the public key uh, she just received to encrypt to arrive at that diffie hellman output and then bob receives it and wants to send a new message generates a new public key sends it over with the message and that so in every message has a different Diffie-Hellman exchange with, without having to you don't do a separate Diffie-Hellman exchange for each message the message is the Diffie-Hellman exchange yeah and you kind of do like half of one yeah and then you can use so ah. That's so, fun. Yeah, it's kind of fun, right? So and so that output is used as the the root key for your key derivation function. Okay. And that is the double ratchet. So basically, this is my I'm this is my joke and I'm very proud of it. So, uh Jared, if you could please laugh, I'd really appreciate it. So the double method. So so the. Sorry, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, so the double ratchet algorithm is applying the tried and true cryptographic method of my algorithm isn't secure enough, so I'm going to apply another algorithm on top of it. <laughs> um, the double ratchet algorithm handles uh, out of order messages in an interesting way too. Oh God. So. Uh, by including the message's number in the sending chain. So, say Bob sends a message. They agree on a key. Um, Alice wants to send a new one, so she creates a new Diffie-Hellman output, a new Diffie-Hellman ratchet iteration. Mm -hmm. Uses that as the key for the key derivation function. And then sends 
haha that's the first message that's so funny that's the second message okay are you uh free for dinner tonight whatever mhm and each of those comes with the nu- the the number that they were the the order of which they were created so the haha is number 1 that's so funny number 2 etc and those use the same what you can imagine the first message using a key derived directly from the Diffie-Hellman exchange. Mm-hmm. The second message, its key, is the second iteration of the key derivation function, which uses whatever, like half of the key that was generated from the first iteration. Mm-hmm. And the, so if Bob receives these out of order... Bob has the same receiving KDF as Alice is sending KDF. Mm-hmm. So if he receives it out of order, if he gets the third one first, then that key is going to be wrong. Right. So the message itself in the header says, hey, I'm the third message in this chain. And Bob can iterate the KD, KDF through until it gets to three and decrypt it with that. And then it receive, then Bob receives one and two and can see the whole message, the whole conversation, rather. Mm-hmm. And there's some more details about whether a particular message triggers a new ratchet step in the Diffie-Hellman exchange, but... Uh-huh. Uh, that's kind of more in the weeds than I necessarily want to get. Uh, point is, like, just literally just by including like the number that it <laughs> that it is in the ratchet, um, you should be able to determine like what the correct key to decrypt to decrypt it is. And that's basically the double ratchet algorithm. You're taking uh, one ratcheting algorithm. And then you put the Diffie-Hellman ratchet algorithm on top of it, and you can use that to securely send messages without having to do a different key exchange every single time. Sick. Um, so back to Matrix, it uses a uh, uses that algorithm, or rather an implementation of it called OLM. Um, there's it. As far as I can tell, OLM is basically exactly the same uh except it has some support for everyone else in the conversation it's not just between two parties Mm -hmm. um which is basically done by just including everyone's public key in the encryption Mm -hmm. some other interesting things i found while researching it um upon receiving a message a server validates the message the message signature against the public key so before any of that happens or oh um and it doesn't have to be end-to-end encrypted right yeah um that is one of the things like uh if you have like a public chat room there's no reason for it to be encrypted it's public mm-hmm. so uh, if you do want like new users, new 
new people in your conversation to be able to see stuff that happened before. You can just not have an encrypted conversation. And not all conversations need to be encrypted. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them should be, but <laughs> they don't all need to be. You're, when you receive a message, your server says, yep, this came from Zach, um, and it is... It has the correct history. The signature uh, of the history of the chat is correct. So Zach isn't trying to... I'm trying to think of a nefarious thing that you could do. I think, honestly, I think that's just a product of the double ratchet algorithm. I think that it's a... It was is being advertised as a feature, even though it's just kind <laughs> of a, a thing that happens. Just how it goes. Um but it also uh, validates the HTTP requests auth signature, so it makes sure it comes from the server and the. So it comes from definitely comes from the correct user. Definitely has all the history there, and definitely comes from the server. It says it's it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, it also makes sure that the user that sent the message has permission to do so, which I thought was interesting because how do you make permissions in a federated system? So, hmm. for example, like if I'm trying to make like a Discord type thing in Matrix, um, how could I have like admins or moderators that can like say right. this message this message is no good. We do not want it. How can I say? How can I tell Zach's server that this message this message sucks? I don't like it, and I'm an admin, and you should trust me. Huh. And the so? the the answer is they don't. Not cryptographically, at least. What they do do is say, Zach, if you want to receive a message, if if you want to set up your server so that it shows you messages that are deleted by moderators, that's up to you. But like we have right. moderators for a reason. Them. Yeah. Uh huh. Um. And permissions are handled on the scale of rooms. A user in a room has a power level between 0 and 100. Um, and depending on your implementation, that is the thing to remember. All of this happens. Mm -hmm. This is how they suggest setting it up. Um, but there's right, no... Right, but it could be that the, the Google matrix server and the Yahoo matrix server treat permissions differently. Right. So admins, so people with level 100... Uh, can affect more things because they have a higher power level. Things like deleting messages, banning and kicking users. Um, and But yeah, this is all done via like trust that the servers are involved in the room are complying with the standard. Uh, there's no way to force another server to delete a message. Uh, but say you're trying to kick someone out. They're being a nuisance and you just want to kick them out of your Discord. Mm -hmm. Copy. And let's say, sorry, I'm trying to interpret my, my notes at the same time as I'm talking. <laughs> okay. So, so um, kicking someone out of a, a room is possible through the, that same system of deleting a message. You just say, hey, I would like to delete this message and I have the, this power level. Mm -hmm. um, and all complying servers will stop accepting messages from that user. Um, so even if a user, uh, I'm going to call them Evan. For alphabet reasons, not because you dislike a particular Evan? 
Well, typically the like uh, the 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 antagonist of the Alice and Bob situation uh-huh. is Eve, and that feels sexist to me. So it's Evan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if Evan creates a server that doesn't comply with the standard, uh, joins a room, and then is kicked from that room. Uh, Evan will not be able to send more messages to that room despite their server not complying to the moderation standard. Because nobody else, everybody else says, well, you don't. Yeah, you're not in the room, so I'm not going to accept messages from you. Okay. And similarly, if everyone else is complying and Evan says a racial slur, then uh, a moderator can delete that message and no one else will see it except for Evan, who will see their own filth. <laughs> and I thought that was, like, kind of a clever thing to do. Because, like, yeah. the the fact is, like, moderation exists for a reason. And people right. want yeah. moderation. You know? And, like, you you make someone a moderator because you trust them. And if you stop trusting that person, you can simply reduce their power level and then... Or kick them entirely, and then all the servers will follow along because you have the higher power level. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, I should mention that when I say messages are end-to-end encrypted, what I mean is that it will s- stay encrypted. It will be encrypted on your device. If it's a phone, then your phone will encrypt the message. Send it to your server, whether that be Google or mm-hmm. whether that be very good that website, the server will send it to someone else's server, or maybe not at all. Maybe it'll just be some, to someone else on the same server. Uh, it will be encrypted through that, and then it will arrive on someone's device, and on that device it will decrypt it. So never in transit, but if your device is compromised, then there's just mm-hmm. nothing you can do. Yeah. Which is true for every encryption algorithm. There's no way to... What if I put the encryption algorithm in my brain? If you want to do that, I (laughs) uh, hope you have a lot of time. (laughs) But yeah, that would work. Mm -hmm. But if you can put it... If you could do that, surely someone could make a virus for your brain as well. So I don't know if it's worth it. That's the problem. I think that is the plot of Snow Crash. <laughs> that's, that's true. I like that. <laughs> um, I think that is all fascinating. I th- think I followed most of it, and I really appreciate that you broke it down. Um, no problem. Because that is really cool. All of the, All of the pieces that have gone into... Somebody thought about this thing 10 years ago, and this thing 20 years ago, and this thing two years ago, and now we've got the matrix conversation standard that can actually put it all into practice and make it happen. Um, Mm -hmm. Theoretical computer science made uh, concrete. Yeah. And like this all like reeks of indie web for sure. Uh But unlike indie web, there are already really, uh, as far as I can tell, some actual really good uh, apps and things to install on your servers that are already here and if you have like if you want to set up your server you can just install the thing you, if you mm-hmm. want to put it on your phone and join someone else's server you can do that too um 
there's and because you can do it on your server, you can uh, create uh, what they call bridges, uh, which is just to say like if you have like an IRC client that you really like, mm-hmm. your server can translate from Matrix to IRC, and that will work just fine. Um, one final question is why does Matrix not very good that website not bring me to anything? <laughs> because I only started it three hours ago (laughs) do you think it's a thing you want to try you want to poke around with more i want to poke around it with it at least um i i think it's going to be difficult to pull me away from signal because it is so good and so reliable and i um and like i don't i'm not unhappy with it for any particular reason right now but it is Mm -hmm. definitely interesting and if uh at some point, you know, Signal endorses it in some way and, like, makes it easy to, like, mm-hmm. send messages through through the Signal app, maybe. Because what I... I don't... I've made my friends switch messaging platforms <laughs> for encryption <laughs> reasons for too long, for too many times, uh-huh. really. So uh, I feel hesitant to do it again when Signal is already such a good idea. It's already such a good app and uh platform it is very cool though and if you can if you have that kind of pull with your friends i uh i think it is definitely worth exploring a matrix signal puppeting bridge written in python using matrix python communicates with signal using signal d Ooh, it's kind of interesting you are as far as i know the kind of person who considers occasionally creating discords um or participating in discords uh-huh. a gamer as they say uh, <laughs> yeah that's a real good description of me <laughs> would you consider matrix as a discord alternative ever i think it falls into a similar boat like i i would love for discord to be end-to-end encrypted i would love for discord to be federated i think that'd be really cool mm-hmm. uh but at the moment like the most important thing about a messaging platform is that I can message people on it, which is not currently the case with mess- with Matrix, just because there are no people. How about I know that there are a lot of podcasts that do podcast discords. Mm-hmm. I think a podcast Matrix would be self-selecting of uh, a particular kind of Jared, you know? Uh-huh. Uh uh-huh yeah let's think about it um maybe jared if you would like to tell us to definitely 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 please make a or yang bugs matrix group chat thing discord-esque group chat let us know on our patreon (laughs) vote with your dollar people Uh uh-huh Single dollar. We can make another. I think there's already a single dollar something. <laughs> oh, um, one other thing about it being Matrix being federated. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I put this? If you are, if you are concerned about like Google reading your emails in order to advertise things to you, which is not an unreasonable thing to be worried about, mm-hmm. um. You can have a an unencrypted chat with your friend, and as long as they are not 
as long as you are both using your own servers or, uh, you know, the same server even, um, you can, like, very uh, confidently say, like, this data is not being used uh, to make my life worse yeah. or to be creepy because, like, to do so- for Google or Amazon to inf- to hack your server... <laughs> <laughs> it just seems unlikely you know uh-huh. and that's like really what we're dealing with when we're talking about security is like how likely is something to happen based on all these things like could you in theory decrypt every single key for every single message for the double for the double ratchet algorithm yes 100 percent. that is a like theoretical possibility yeah you could guess the right key first try it's just so unlikely that we say it's impossible and now a psa from the worrying bugs the moon is evil now this has been a psa from the worrying bugs Jared, if you would like to invite me to your room in ma- in in the Matrix or whatever you want to call that, <laughs> uh, or if you walk into a subway and say, "I bet that that chicken's not chicken," uh, you should reach out and tell me about it. I would love to hear. Uh, you can tell me all about it on Twitter. I'm at. 